This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Welcome to the third Summer Dispatch. We come to you now at the tail end of an unbearable heat wave here in central New Jersey. The temperature on Sunday in Princeton was 103 degrees Fahrenheit. Here in the WPRB studios, it's positively chilly to keep both the DJs and the studio equipment happy. But the sweltering temperatures and bathtub-like humidity are inescapable nonetheless. As you emerge from air conditioning to stand among the soupy air, not even antiperspirant or sunglasses can save you from the weight of the atmosphere on your shoulders, the feeling of cooking sous vide in your own skin, each step heavier than the last. Your only respite? Community radio. Not only does a good summer dispatch cure the soul, new studies suggest that listening to WPRB news and culture on sweaty days can actually create a cooling effect for the mind. Fascinating stuff, really. And lucky for you, you've an hour of it coming up right now. First up, Charlie Nuremberger explores an abandoned building near his home in Baltimore, Maryland. Next, Henry Moses speaks to New Jersey writer Bud Smith, author of this year's widely acclaimed novel, Teenager. After that, Alan Plotz learns about the threat invasive plants could pose to the central New Jersey we call home. And finally, reporter Raina Koulibaly returns to news and culture with part two of her dispatch from an ashram in Northern California. All this in just a few moments. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. First up, reporter Charlie Nuremberger comes to us from Baltimore, Maryland, where he investigated the infant phantom of the Winterborn Mansion. WPRB News and Culture often asks its reporters to undertake significant risk and venture into unknown territory. Tonight, however, I'll be taking the greatest risk any WPRB DJ has ever taken in the history of the segment. I'll be braving not just angry target workers or visitors of the Princeton campus, but instead the supernatural and the evils that lurk in the depths of every human soul. These are the sounds of Winderborn Mansion, located in Boyd's, Maryland. At another point in the year, you might hear loons on Little Seneca Lake. If it were earlier in the day, 
you would hear the trains passing along the BNO Railroad, which runs alongside the property. All we can hear now is the sound of an evening drawing to a close, and maybe a faint crying. You might think that ghost hunting simply involves showing up to a possibly haunted location and hitting the record button, but getting to Winterborne Mansion was a feat in itself. It is 10 p.m. There's a fine mist over I-70, cloudless night. We're on our way to Winterborne Mansion in Western Maryland, the likely haunted, um, definitely spooky location of this segment of WPRB News and Culture. Joining me on this escapade was friend and trusted companion, Joseph Harlan. I'm in the car with fellow paranormal investigator and skeptic, Joseph, my good friend. Um, Joseph, tell me, tell me, how are you feeling um, as we walk into the hands of death here? Uh, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm a, I'm a bit tired today. Um, it's been a long day. Uh, usually go to bed at like 10.30, so this is definitely a long night for me. Um, in terms of saying likely paranormal activity, uh, you know, most often than not, it's just been, you know, just things that are like completely normal, like uh, creak of the wood, you know, dog in the yard. Like, I, I'm, I'm not convinced here. Like, I, I'm thinking that... Um, like, what are we even looking for here? I'm pretty sure it's a baby ghost. I think the ghost is three years old. Though my research did not actually stipulate an age, it did seem that we were investigating the ghost of an infant daughter. Winterborne Mansion, constructed in 1884 by Mary and Enoch Totten, an heiress of a sewing machine fortune and a Civil War veteran, respectively, was no stranger to tragedy. From bouts of typhoid among the Totten children to a tragic fall from a stairway banister from later generations, Multiple children have been known to die in the property. To learn more about what we could be facing, Joseph and I contacted another friend and true believer of paranormal phenomena, Charlie Chiller Hiller. He told us about an encounter at a local asylum and suspected haunted location. So as we were leaving the asylum, uh, we go down this, you know, long, narrow path through the brush, and it's dark out. 
and we go past this, you know, like building that's like you see on the way in. It's we don't really think anything of it. But as you're going, as we were going past this path, like it was pretty cool out. You know, end of the day is probably like 60, 70 degrees, not too hot. But as soon as we got to this this like area, all of a sudden I just stood in this place and it just got hot, really, really hot. Like I'd say, I like guess it was like uncomfortable. Like it just jumped up in temperature. It was really, really weird. And as soon as I stepped away, it went away. And it, and then I went back and it was gone. So uh, it was just definitely one of the weirder experiences I've had. That's when our trials and tribulations began. As Joseph allegedly received a text from his mother saying that he needed to return home. Oh, wait. Shoot. I just got a text from my mom. So be back home by 11.30. Shoot. I'm going to have to go back. Shoot. So I just um, dropped off Joseph. And I guess, I guess I'm doing this alone. I guess I'm going to this haunted mansion by myself. Uh, I had a little difficulty finding the place um but i'm i'm approaching the property now it's a lot darker than i expected i'm a little creeped out um i don't really know what to expect i've seen some images online of this place i think it's been really in disrepair for, I guess, since like 1929 when the family sold it. I think um, from early sources, the house is known for its pink trim and exotic plant collection. So I guess I'll see if that's held up. So I'm, I'm uh, here at Winterborn Mansion. I'm alone. Um, I've done this kind of thing before, but not solitarily. Um, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio.
Next up on News & Culture, reporter Henry Moses talks to New Jersey writer Bud Smith, author of the acclaimed recent novel, Teenager. Six months until I turn 20, cross out of my teenage years and into true adulthood. I feel pretty happy with my teenage years. I had some good adventures, saw some cool places, and met wonderful people. Nevertheless, I'm kind of apprehensive to turn 20, to not be a teenager anymore, as if I can do anything about it. I read Teenager by Bud Smith at the beginning of this summer, the summer after my freshman year of college, and the final summer of my teenage years. I've been thinking about it ever since, and my proximity to my 20s has made its resonances more acute for me now. Teenager, published in May 2022 by Vintage Books, is the story of two runaways. Cody has just escaped Juvie and stops to pick up his girlfriend Teal from her restrictive parents. They leave New Jersey for the American landscape. It's a twist on the classic American narrative and the American dream. Through its twist then narrative, it pokes fun at its flaws, all while staying committed to the spirit and hope of the individual. Bud Smith is more than a writer. He is a heavy construction worker, a New Jersey native, but he's not a teenager anymore. Still, his novel is an ode to the teenage spirit, teenage freedom, and teenage passion. I had the opportunity to talk with Bud about his wonderful novel and about his life. Along the way, I found some kernels of advice about how to make the most of these final six months of my teenage years. I started simply with the title. Well, yeah, the title, you know, it represents the ages of some of the characters and how you feel at that age, how everything feels just so wild and open. So I want to write a book about what it felt like to, you know, break out into your own life, finding your own way. And our characters, you know, they they get there through a series of disasters, some of them self-perpetuated and some of them hoist on onto them. They get out into the teenager of America. You know what I mean? Like this country, it's it seems a lot older than it is. It's still pretty young and it stays. Um, when you look at it compared to the rest of the world, I thought of America too as like this, this place that hasn't quite come into its self. It still just has like eyes rolled in the back of its head. It's not quite, hasn't quite gotten its balance or its poise. And I don't know if it ever will, but it's like, yeah, it's just that feeling of when you're, you're just busting away from like, whatever's holding you down and you maybe make a lot of mistakes in the beginning, but eventually you will find yourself. I next asked him what his teenage years in New Jersey were like. Growing up in New Jersey was the easiest thing. Blue collar family. My dad was a garbage truck repair, repair man. Um, he worked, he worked construction until it got really slow. And then he, he took a job in a uh, municipal garage, fixed garbage trucks and police cars. And my mom, she had a job working in a, um, an aerosol spray can factory. She worked at a factory for a while and um, night shift usually. And so they were doing that and we lived right on the shore. Uh, we lived on the bay in Bayville and, you know, you go to the beach all the time. And, and we lived at a campground actually for many years. And so it was just playing in the sand pits and in the pine barrens and in this late spring and summertime, the campground would fill with other kids and I could just play all night long with kids and have campfires. And, and I grew up that way doing that up until, you know, right before high school, we moved into a regular development. We had, a, there was a house in the campground. I moved into a regular development and then it was just, you know, suburban playing football in the streets every day. But one thing remained constant throughout. 
I was always trying to write stories and I, and I never really understood um, why I always wanted to just write stories because there's nobody really to read them. <laughs> he was surrounded by stories as a New Jersey teenager, one of which was that of the New Jersey Devil, which I asked about. It's a folklore. It's a folklore thing. New Jersey Devil was, there's many different iterations of the folktale, but one is that Mother Leeds was going to have her 13th child and she, she damned the child to hell or something like that right before it was born, just in frustration, you know, just angry that she's pregnant the 13th time. And when the baby was born, it was a little demon with wings and it flew up into the attic and she trapped it in the attic and it grew up in there until it uh, burst out of the top and got loose in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. So, you know, it's kind of like our regional Bigfoot or, or uh, Chupacabra or something. Yeah. So when we were, when we were little kids, you know, of course, you know, let's go look for the Jersey devil and catch it and kill it. Yeah. I mean, Cody's kind of like that. He's in a way damned from birth. He's got a foster mom, right? Like presumably he was given up by his parents or his parents passed away or something. But no, that that's actually a really great parallel, but I never thought about that. But I always think about how people are raised and, you know, sometimes a really good person can be raised very illy raised, you know, it's, they're not, they're not treated right. They don't get nourishment. They don't get emotional love from anybody and they kind of grow up a little crooked, um, but it's not because they're bad. It's just like, they never really had that, that support and that love. And um, for Tila, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, she had parents there for her, but obviously very neglectful, abusive. I mean, I've been writing a lot about orphans um, for a little while, and I'm hoping to <laughs> I'm hoping to stop writing about orphans soon, because yeah. um, I feel like I just I'm I'm ready to uh, write about people who who have been loved. Um, I need a little more hope, a little more hope for society. I think. In some ways, Teenager is a quite hopeful narrative. The point of this was to kind of show you what happens when, when people can finally, finally rip the handcuffs off that, that have been placed on them by the, the neglect they've suffered from an early age. And now they're finally, finally busted loose out into what will be the rest of their lives. Yeah, oh, I'm always, I'm like optimistic to a fault. Yeah. No. <laughs> Where's that come from? I don't know. My parents were always just, they never, they never seemed like anything was bothering them. Um, there was never, you know, I mean, well, I mean, obviously people get just mad at their lives a little bit and it happens, but it just seemed like nothing was ever a big deal. He went further on the way this influences his writing. I feel like a little person and all I can really do is keep my head in the clouds and try to write the best I can, try to tell the best stories I can and uh, maybe that's all I can really do to help make the world a little better. So I don't have the internet on my phone and I'm not, uh, I'm not crushed by doom, uh, even though I should be. I asked how this influences the way he reads as well. You said in one interview, that the book is like the drug or something. Yeah. That's another way of looking at it. I mean, and it, that is true. Yeah. And I've been on plenty of drugs where I wasn't joyful, Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and but it's, it's a way that, that you can, you can escape into something different. On this topic, I wanted to ask what books were influential on the creation of Teenager. So while I was 
writing teenager, I had gotten the advice to read uh, Madame Bovary. So I read Madame Bovary and uh, yeah, I thought that was amazing. And the thing about Madame Bovary is it's just like, what if you decided every, every sentence was a, was a little piece of a poem, you know? So how's that really, you know, he just decided, Flaubert decided, you know, what if we could make this as poetic as possible? So that stuff is obviously like very, very um, important to me. Those writers who do that, like Dennis Johnson, um, Tim O'Brien does it in a different way. These writers who just like make everything as abst- abstracted as possible and poetic in yeah. their own weird ways, inject themselves into the narrative. Not that, not that Flaubert does that, but just the idea that reverie can enter into the middle of the paragraph and slip away. And, you know, you can have sentences just turn on their head. It was the year before the pandemic, decided I wanted to read Ulysses. So I read, I was probably on like my fourth draft of Teenager by then. And I decided I wanted to read Ulysses and I wanted to read it in, it's 18 chapters, I think. So I decided I was going to read it in 18 weeks. And I read I tried to read 18 of the best, quote unquote, best books I've never read. So my list was like, and it's a ridiculous list. It was like Hamlet. Jumps up. I can't believe we didn't read Hamlet as I didn't read that in high school. Um, Hamlet, Macbeth, a bunch of Faulkner, As I Lay Dying, The Sound and the Fury, um, Virginia Woolf, To the Lighthouse. So what does Cody read? Cody, Cody is a, he's a Shakespeare guy. He's read and he's admired Hamlet. Um, and I think he sees a little bit of himself in Hamlet. And he is a huge fan of Don Quixote. Um, and he, he, has, he has read that book, I figured, a few times. Um, and I, I thought of him like Faulkner a little bit. You know, Faulkner was this guy who he's told a lot of told tales, obviously. And one of them was he had this metal plate in his head and, you know, which did turn out not to be true. And he would say things like, you know, I read, I read Don Quixote every year and uh, maybe he did. I don't know. He also says he would read Moby Dick every year and he would read the Bible every year. And um, Teal reader, she loves to read some, some of the classics. I, I thought she was like a big fan of like the Bronte sisters. She's, she's read like Pride and Prejudice and she's, she's a Bronte sisters fan. She'll read like supermarket romance books and stuff, but um, really, you know, she's been, uh, she's been typecast by her boyfriend as a girl who just wants to read the crappiest romance novel. I then asked him about the genesis of his creative pursuits. Uh, yeah, I remember being in like sixth grade and like having notebooks where I would like try to write a novel. I remember writing, a, I remember trying to write something about like aliens came or something and some, some kids have to fight aliens to uh, save their school or something like that. By the time middle school rolled around, the teacher would assign something and, and I'm just writing like completely what I want to write and They'd give me like an okay grade on it just because like, you know, for effort, but it'd be like in the margins, hey, you know, uh, this was not the assignment. I wondered if this urge to break free from the constraints of the assignments was related to the driving force of the novel. I'm kind of a one-trick pony, and I, I just feel like it's like the limitations of our lives eventually become a thing that we just get so sick of that we have a choice that's either surrender to it which is one way the story goes. And then the other, the other way is obviously the ones you read that I write. And when, when we're teenagers, there are less stakes. And I guess that makes sense why it's the subjects of your novel are teenagers. Do you think that 
that like desire to break free is something elemental to the teenage spirit or the teenage being or does it last all throughout life for some people it lasts all throughout life um and then other people i think like i said like eventually you just kind of give up or you've decided that you know you can't take risks anymore for for certain reasons and sometimes they're very good reasons there's a moment in the second half of the novel where cody and teal worry they are about to get caught by the police and sent to jail for all of their crimes they're hiding out in a field, laying down so as not to be seen by a cop car on the top of the ridge. They imagine hiding in the field so long that they become part of the field itself. And in this new identity, they find love and growth once again. If they stayed long enough, they would change with the field and become the field themselves. Sunshine would crack them from time to time, but the sun would always set and the evening would be cool with mercy. The breeze carrying across the field and in the darkness, they would continue to wait. A moon would rise and a cold wind would blow and the stars would shine down. Clouds would storm in and block the starlight. Gentle rains would fall on Cody and Teal in the field they'd become. Everything muddy and pocked with small puddles, growing, connecting, consolidating, and they'd wait. And dawn would approach for the hundredth time. The earth beginning to warm again. Fog forming and covering everything in a shimmering dew. Moss expanding, sponge-like, and blades of grass, shining like enchanted swords. Now the sun heating it all up again, steam rising out of the crevices and crags and miniature caves of the earth. Seeds would open and new seedlings would stand up and say, how do you do? Animals would wake up, open their eyes and say, how do you do? Sniffing the air and deciding what direction was best to hunt. And the animals finding Cody and Teal, their bodies a burst of wildflowers and not a thing to eat. The sun high again, and making a blinding light on the police car's windshield. And what has it been? A thousand years? Turning 20 won't be the end of the world. Bud Smith's teenager isn't only a testament to its title's subject, but to all humanity, no matter the age. Teenager is out now wherever you get your books. Thank you to Bud for taking the time to talk with this teenager. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Henry Moses. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. Live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV, Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Coming up next on News & Culture, reporter Alan Plotz learns more about the threat that invasive plants could pose to our central New Jersey home. You see a vine growing on a tree that doesn't seem to be working with the tree and is instead taking over that tree, it is likely to be invasive. That's Kent McLaughlin, who's working this summer with Friends of Princeton Open Spaces to address invasive plants in the Mountain Lake Preserve in central New Jersey. Mountain Lakes Preserve is um, some acres uh, north of uh, Princeton campus by about like a 10-minute drive or so. It's on Mountain Ave. 
And basically it's a man-made lake that was originally used by the Princeton Ice Making Company. I don't remember their name specifically and it was ice for ice boxes all around in the 1800s. And then later was bought by Phobos as a place to um, work on conservation and create a nice place for the community. There are a lot of trails that you can see different types of forest sites. It goes by Tusculum, which is sort of like a meadowy area. This summer, Kat has been exploring the range of species that challenge the Mountain Lakes Nature Preserve, but she took some time to sit down with us here at WPRB to talk a little bit more about invasive species, their relationship to New Jersey, and what we can do. I think that there's this misconception when it comes to um, damaging an ecosystem and pr whether it becomes farmland or you have invasives present, that as much as it's bad and that like some of the plants are being outcompeted, it can't be that bad because there are still plants there. And that's really not how it works. Um, having one plant take over an ecosystem doesn't just mean like, oh, it used to be that dark green plant and now it's a slightly lighter green plant, but it's still a forest. A lot of the species, whether you care about the birds or various insects or even mammals, they're all connected. And a lot of um, animals have very specific relationships with certain types of plants and having another one come in and take over it will upset the balance of the entire ecosystem. So as much as you might like the prettier grass more, that could potentially be adversely affecting like the birds that you really enjoy in your backyard. It's not all just forest. Like it takes a while for land to rebound from um, certain types of disruptances. The Mountain Lakes Preserve, like much of New Jersey, has a lot of challenges when it comes to these invasive plant species. Silkgrass is one of the largest ones. I'd say another really big one, which honestly always makes people sad when I tell them on the site, is honeysuckle. Um, honeysuckle vine and bush, they have the beautiful fragrant flowers, incredibly invasive growing all over trees. You go down the side of the highway and you'll see vines of honeysuckle covering all the trees. They're really not good. Um, there's a plant called mile a minute, which is its colloquial term, but it's because it can grow up to six inches a day. And it's actually pretty nasty. It's barbed and has like uh, these triangle leaves, grows really fast. And it's actually about to go to seed. So if you happen to see some in your yard, now is a great time to pull it out. And then also I'd say probably my least favorite to remove is the multiflora rosa. It's a type of common rose bush. It has all of like the thorns of the bramble and it also is very invasive around here. But there are certainly steps that they're taking in order to combat these threats to the ecosystem. The two biggest parts of our work of creating a healthy um, ecosystem is removing invasives so that we can plant natives that will thrive. And the thing that's sort of sad about that is invasive removal is incredibly necessary because otherwise they will outcompete those plants that we want to um, have on site. However, in terms of funding that, a lot of investors who want to help the environment are much more likely to put their money into, oh, let's plant all of these new plugs, which sounds lovely. There are lots of pretty flowers and are crowd sellers. And you can, or if you plant a tree, you're like, one day that tree will be there. But they will not succeed very well if you aren't paying the people or those type of maintenance required to remove those invasives. So that's half of it. And the other half is having the plants that would help create a healthy ecosystem, the ones that native insects have to eat so that native birds can succeed with or in pollination. Pollinators are incredibly important in general. It's how a lot of plants continue to survive and reproduce, whether those be plants that we enjoy just because they're really pretty like flowers or plants that we need to survive because we eat the fruits they bear or whatever like that. Just in general, we try to sort of almost restore the site to what it could have been before 
we exposed it to whether the degradation of becoming a farm site, which was a lot of um, mountain lakes, or just the invasive plants that are present now. Don't think it's only local organizations that can be doing this work. There are ways for local New Jerseyans to help combat these invasive plants as well. So the biggest things that we do are just pull them out of the ground because um, that's the best we can do, the best way that we can try to slowly take away the um, amount of invasives like in our backyards or on the site is having a continuous manual removal because especially on site where I work at Mountain Lakes and depending on where you are in New Jersey, there are riparian areas and ones that are close to um, water sources and the amount of like pesticide and herbicide you can use is heavily regulated because of that. And also just in general, you can have qualms with those for other very valid environmental reasons. So simply removing them and continuing to remove them over time will exhaust the plant and exhaust the seed bank in the soil. Um, I will say additionally, one thing to do, especially if you have, if you are a homeowner or have any control of what's being planted near you, be very careful about what you buy at plant stores because a lot of like Home Depot, Lowe's, or even just a, a local plant nursery will have a lot of real invasives that could destroy the ecosystem if you bring them in. So be careful about that and try to prioritize getting native plants and not introducing things that would even worsen your backyard as the native ecosystem. Across New Jersey, the natural world is facing other threats. One, the spotted lanternfly. We even did PSAs about here at WPRB last year. And it's come that time of year again. Spotted lanternfly is a big problem um, in New Jersey and states surrounding. And there are a ton of um, them this year. I've already seen so many of the nymphs. Um, and a woman came up to me and was like, oh, so um, I've been spraying neem oil on them. Like, how is that going? Is Am I helping out? Like, um, what can I do better? And personally on site, most of what I do is just stomp on them. Um, I do not have any fancy chemicals, but apparently white vinegar also works. So if you're curious, that might be easier than neem. For those of us like me who aren't very educated on plants, neem oil is like a natural pesticide from the seeds of a neem tree. Speaking of trees, trees in New Jersey are also under threat. If you're in New Jersey and you see a tree that is dying, um, it is probably going to be an ash tree. Ash trees, green ashes, white ashes are all currently being threatened by a species called the um, emerald ash borer and it's type of invasive insect that is um, killing all of the ash trees around here and also are a big hassle for um, government, homeowners, literally anyone because they can fall on things and that's not good. But overall, Kat has found that while invasive species pose a threat to local systems, people have come together to preserve these New Jerseyan public spaces. We run volunteer sessions almost every Saturday, which is a bunch of people come in and work on various things we need. It's definitely always fun to see people who take a Saturday out of their weekend to come here because they're just many different types of people. There's a family group that comes every now and then. There's a like local New Jersey, like let's do things together group. And then there's people that are there like every month and just know my boss very well and know the site very well and just want to continue to help. And I'd say it's been very rewarding to ask, like answer questions because people are genuinely curious. Some kids come by. I remember a kid was very excited about pulling out a big thing of honeysuckle and was like, can I have this like dead stick as a reward? And I was like, yeah, sure. Enjoy the stick. And he was really psyched about it. And it was very fun. No matter what your motivation is, whether it's a big stick or wanting to protect your home from a falling elm, we can all find reasons to come together and preserve our land. For WPRB, this has been Alan Plotz.
WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations, including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. And in our last story this evening, reporter Raina Koulibaly returns to news and culture with another dispatch from the ashram in Sonoma, California. July 13, 2022, also known as Guru Purnima for Hindu practitioners all over the world. What is Guru Purnima? What a great question. For answers, I turn to a longtime member of the ashram community. This is Kate Seek. Um, Guru Purnima, as best I can articulate it, is a festival once a year to celebrate the Guru. And to me, that means two things. At the one level, it's about celebrating Babaji and, you know, the lineage of gurus who have who have built the Agora tradition. Um, so Babaji, Sakar Baba, and then all the way back to Kinaram. And so it's about going to, you know, if possible, go to the ashram, take the day, really celebrate and focus, be part of the community, celebrate each other. And at the second level... You know, as Baba always says, a guru doesn't make disciples, a guru makes gurus. It is about recognizing the development and unfolding of the guru within you and within all the members of, of our community as well. So it is a day to reflect on and celebrate your own growth, your own progress, your own spiritual journey. What is the deeper meaning of Guru Purnima? It's the presence of the guru really reminds us a presence of our own higher self. That was the guru himself, Baba Harihar Ramji, in his opening statements to that day's satsang or spiritual talk. So basically, the Guru Purnima is about acknowledging your own higher self. The best I can be. What is the most precious thing in my life? Think about that. The journey of your own soul your own journey. Yes, we get caught up with our worldly problems. We keep on going. Where are we going? Was I born just to live, go through ups and downs? Is that the purpose of the life? There is a higher reason, higher purpose for taking this birth. So this Guru Purnima, not only this Guru Purnima, but the Guru Purnima week or a day carved out 
to honor their journey. Most of the time, you see, I see people who have problems, and that's all we want to get beyond. But the biggest problem is, am I moving towards my real goal? Guru, you hear in the Guru traditions that there are, there are many Gurus. It's not about many Gurus, about the Guru within you. And Guru Purnima, many people go to their Gurus and have their blessing and do all those things. But the real purpose is going to your own Guru, the Guru within you. The Guru sitting on the Guru's seat in your ashram is just a reminder, just a reminder of the Guru within you. So this day is to think about what is my connection with my Guru Self. Do I compromise living my highest for something? The Guru-Disciple relationship is based on love and trust. Do I compromise my love and my trust in myself for something else? We all want to love ourselves. We all want to trust ourselves. But very often I hear, Babaji, I don't love myself. I don't trust myself. How do we get to love ourselves and trust ourselves? Well, if I don't have this for myself, I go to someone who tells me, reminds me again. If you don't love yourself, you don't trust yourself, there are certain things you could do, little baby steps towards that. So that is the role of the guru in a person. And before you take that advice from that person, you have to have some respect and some trust in that person. So what I'm not able to give first into myself, I give it to somebody else. At least in doing so, I become aware of the presence of love and trust in myself. That is, it is within me. I take it from here, put it here, at least I can see it's there. I get an experience of it. I'm just trying to explain how this works in a very simple way. It's not about adoring, honoring, worshiping somebody else. Although from outside it looks like that. People go to their guru, they bow, they show respect, and there's a little smile in their heart when they're face to face with their guru. So at least you become aware of those qualities within you, that they are there, those virtues are within me. And the trick is that how I can give that to myself. So the guru in a person will tell, tell you, okay, here is a practice, here is a mantra, here is how you do it. And while doing this, you know that this is what I am doing in the name of giving love to myself, respect to myself. Guru has given you a mantra. The more you practice with your mantra, something begins to grow within you. Trust begins to grow in you. In olden days, yogis were able to do many things with the mantra. Mantra is powerful. With the mantra, yogis are able to do which may look like a miracle to us. The mantra practice that people have with that mantra, some element of trust begins to build inside. So some of you I'm sitting, who is sitting in front of me, who have received your mantra. Mantra is not just a thing to calm your mind or is to 
when you are doing your mantra daily, you are also advised to test your mantra sometimes. So these are very simple little things that we may not be doing. You can do it. And when you see the effect of it, you begin to believe in your mantra a little more. There is power in the mantra. It is said that even impossible becomes possible if you give something to someone, even the ashes you give to someone, wishing them well and thinking of your guru. And we also have to look at our mind. We are always doubting ourselves. Oh, I will do this. Maybe it will, maybe it will happen. Maybe it will not. If you say this will happen, your energy goes in it and that energy makes the difference. So how do you build your trust in yourself? You build by believing in your, trusting your mantra practice. We have to start somewhere. If I don't love myself, if I don't trust myself, I have to at least start by loving and trusting the guru who has given us a practice. Please know if we're doubting everything all the time, then that's what it keeps. Start looking at it with a little positive vision. It's totally up to us whether we see the glass half empty or half full. And I always believe in seeing the glass half full. There is always possibility for growth. Each one of us has that. And if nothing else, make this Guru Purnima week our Guru Purnima day be about us looking at our own mind. There were tons of devotees in the backyard that day, a couple dozen, although I am told that past Guru Purnimas have attracted hundreds of people to the ashram throughout the day. I think that Babaji's teachings feel so accessible on a non-denominational front. He emphasizes the importance of self-reflection and meditation, actions guided by one's values, which is a theme in many religions. Babaji has a series called Practical Spirituality, where he helps Western devotees incorporate spirituality and mindfulness into their day-to-day lives. From the people that I have spoken to, it really does make a big difference. There's a lot of joy. I should also talk about this, you know, like it's so easy to get caught up in what's really hard in the world. And I do think that Babaji certainly addresses all of that and doesn't whitewash it, but there are also in the midst of everything, there's moments for joy and reflection. And I like that there's that reminder so that when you have a hard day, like you said, like, hey, I'm alive. All these years of evolution and it got to me. No, or as hard as it is, you know, I still have some food or as hard as it is, I still have a house or as hard as it is, I have someone who loves me and a community that supports me. And that grace can be exactly what we need in some of those more challenging moments. As long as you are committed to being a good human being and make little effort, make little sacrifice, you are on the way towards to Guruhood. You'll become an example for someone. You will become a source of inspiration for someone. That is the guru. You know, we are all part of the same thing. And so, you know, what you what you do to one, you kind of do to all. Ultimately, Guru Purnima is a day for followers to really delve into who they are and access that highest self. You are capable of being a guru. For WPRB, this has been Reina Kulibali.
And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB Studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Charlie Nurnberger, Henry Moses, Alan Plotz, Randa Koulibaly, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Other songs included in this episode include 1L72 by Satunaman and Wind in the Trees by 229898. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website, news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.